Uh, good morning, friends. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you before, it's good to see you at church this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 5 now. We're going to... Um, we're going to be doing a bit of work in the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, so we'll be around there a bit, so keep your Bibles open. Luke chapter 5, we'll get there in a second, <clears throat> but before we do that, I just want to um, open this talk and preface this talk with this. Yesterday I was um, playing with Judah, my son, and, and uh, I was throwing him up in the air and catching him and he was having a bit of fun and I thought, I'm going to throw him really high, so I sort of got down, I threw him as high as I could and I caught him and just had this like crazy pain shooting through the back of my ribs. I literally had to put him down and just like hunch over and I was like, oh, I'm out, time out, went and sat down, hot pack, Panadol, an hour later, Nurofen and I was sitting on the couch at home and, um, and I was like, I'm, I'm done, I can't do this, I'm struggling here and so I said to Tash, you got to take me to the doctor, I need some of the good stuff. So I went to the doctor and um, I got some, I don't know what it was, anti-inflammatories and painkillers. Anyway, I'm up to my eyeballs on drugs at the moment and I feel like my back is actually feeling pretty good right now. But if I start saying stupid things, then it's not me, it's the medication, I promise you, all right? But um, this is my point with this is, it's only when we get to that point of, of realizing that we actually need help, we can't do this on our own, get to that point of going... I've got to go to the doctor because if I don't, I think I'm going to die or I think I'm never going to get better or this pain is just so bad that I, I need help. And this morning we're looking at a passage from Luke chapter 5 um, where Jesus says, I am the great physician. I am the doctor of your soul. Come to heal and restore. And, and it's only when we realize that we need Jesus that we ever come to him. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 5 together this morning. I want to read a, a bit of that for you and, um, and then we're going to explain it. So let's go Luke chapter 5 starting at verse 27. This is what it says. And after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We need to get that Levi is not the first pick for the team. Right, if he's, Jesus is picking teams, Levi is the guy that is the last guy there. He's the guy when you get to the end and you just have to pick him on your team because there's no one else left. That's the kind of guy who Levi is. And I know this is somewhat revision for some of you, but Levi is a tax collector. And what that means is that Levi earns a living from extortion. He earns a living by ripping people off, by lining his pockets from taking a, a little bit on top of what the, the usual tax was. But not only that, he's a Jew. And so he's purchased the right to tax his own people from the enemy. So here come his people and in order to do business, in order to travel, he rips his own people off and then he goes and gives that money to the enemy. There is not a patriotic bone in Levi's body whatsoever. But further, that, further than that, he's, 
He's also failed to believe the promises of God. You see, the Jews believed that that the Messiah would come and and God would rescue his people and and he would free them from the oppression of the nations that oppress them. And in this situation, it's Rome. And so here is Levi disbelieving the promises of God and actively working against God's plan by taxing his people and, and giving that money to the enemy. Here is a man who works for people who had most likely murdered someone you knew oppressed your people brutally and savagely. And so Levi just isn't the, the guy you would pick for your team. So the question is, why does Jesus choose Levi? Why does he walk up to him and say, Levi, come, follow me, be one of my disciples? Well, I think the, that Jesus does that because he, he picks the worst of sinners to demonstrate that if he can save this guy, he can save anyone. So it's not like he says to Levi, You've got to get yourself sorted out before you come follow me. He doesn't say to him, no, no, look, sort out this, this issue and then, and then you'd be appropriate to be one of my followers and disciples. And he, he comes to Levi and Levi's in the tax booth. Like he's in the middle of his sin, right? And Jesus comes up to him and he says, come, follow me. And I think that's Jesus' way of saying, you know what, you don't, you don't have to get yourself all together before you start following me. You can come as you are. Jesus comes and he calls sinners from their sin in the midst of their sin. That's why it's a mistake to think that in order to be a Christian, you've got to sort yourself out. Right? It's not that you have to, you know, before you come to Jesus, you're like, I've just got to fix this thing out. And then, and then I, or before I go to church, I've got to sort this issue out. And, and you know what? Jesus doesn't stand there with folded arms and think, all right, fix yourself up, then, then come. No, he doesn't. He, he relentlessly pursues sinners and calls them from the midst of their sin. That's why it's a shame that the church has a reputation for being a people that um, are self-righteous and perfect and have it all together. It's just not true. It's not the way it was meant to be. Jesus never, never wanted the church to be like that. In fact, the gospel means that we're freed from having to pretend that we're okay. The church is not a perfect people. The church, in fact, is an imperfect people with a perfect saviour. Friends, if you knew our stories, if you knew the people that were a part of our church, you would hear stories of people who are messed up, people who have got pride, people who have got sin, people who have got skeletons in their closet. And so in the end, church ought to be a hospital for the sick and not a hotel for the saints. So I think Jesus picks Levi to demonstrate that he does call sinners transform them he comes to Levi and he says follow me be one of my disciples and what does Levi do he, he gets up he leaves everything and he, and he follows Jesus that is a life-changing moment for Levi it's the moment that he becomes a Christian and his response is that he throws a party verse 29 says it's a, a great feast and he invites all of his friends and of course the company that Levi kept, uh, kept is fairly shady we're talking tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. All of the people who are on the, the margins of society get invited to Levi's party because he's overjoyed of what Jesus has done in his life and he invites Jesus to that party as well. This would be a little bit like a nun going to a bikey party. That, that's what it would be like. Jesus goes to this party with Levi and all of his shady friends. Culturally, in the first century, um, to 
Share a meal with someone meant that you had friendship and unity and kinship and, and intimacy with that person. On a little side note there, it's important that we have eating as one of the core values of our gospel communities because it's exactly what it does, intimacy and friendship and unity. But the Pharisees, as they see what Jesus is doing here, they think that by association, Jesus is now making himself unclean, unfit for worship. See, the Pharisees think that sin is much like a cold. It it can get caught. And so they practice this strict form of separatism where they they keep themselves away from sin. They they seek to quarantine themselves from sin at all costs. And so they come to Jesus and they object. They say to his disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers with, with what I think is some of the simplest and yet some of the most profound words and images that leave Jesus' lips. Go back to verse 31 with me. This is what it says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When do you go to the doctor when you're not sick? When you chuck a sickie. That's when you go to the doctor when you're not sick, right? But you you just don't go to the doctor when when you're well, because A... It's either bulk bill and there's like a two-hour wait or B, it costs like $65 and you're like, I'm good. I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm perfectly healthy. So the only time you go to the doctor, apart from a sickie, is when you're actually sick and you need help. And what Jesus is saying here is saying, I am a doctor. I'm a doctor for the soul and these people are sick. It's a, a statement of his, his life's mission. It's a statement of his purpose. It's a statement of his identity, what he's come to do. But I also think it's a stinging condemnation of the Pharisees because they do not come to Jesus, because they do not perceive their need. They think that they're righteous. But here's the deal, right? Jesus is not suggesting that there are two groups of people. There's one group of people that are okay and don't need any help. And then there's this other group of people over here are sick and and need help. He's not suggesting that at all. He's suggesting that that there are people who perceive their need, like Levi, and then there are those who don't. And so what happens in the following encounters with Jesus is that these religious people, they come to Jesus and they seek to justify their, uh, their, their lifestyle, their way of living, their understanding of religion, their understanding of worship. And so they come to Jesus with examples of their worship, of their law, of their obedience. But the problem is that Jesus redefines what it means to worship God. He redefines what, um, what it means to be righteous and to be healthy and to be sick. So for the Jews, what they thought was, the law and obedience to the law, that was the thermometer of righteousness, of, of healthiness, of godliness. And so they come to Jesus with examples of the law. And the extent to which you obeyed the law and kept the law was the extent to which God was either pleased or displeased with you. So that's why they come in verse 33 with this suggestion. Have a look. Verse 33, it says this. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. God had set aside one day a year that was required, that he, he required his people to fast. And that was the Day of Atonement. It was a solemn day. It was a day of remembering what God had done as he brought his people out of slavery from Egypt and, and freed them. And, and so he said, this day is an annual remembrance. And on that day, you are to deny yourselves. Do no work, fast and pray. 
Now, God's people would often voluntarily fast more than that. And we kind of get an inkling from that, that parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector that the Pharisees fasted maybe twice a week. And we hear that John's disciples, verse 33, they fast often. It's, um, it's, a, it's a virtue in their religious culture that you would fast. It's, um, it's a mark of uh, worship, highly regarded. And so if Jesus doesn't fast, then what does that mean about God? What does that mean about his passion for God? What does that mean about his obedience to the law? Now you notice that as Jesus interacts with these guys, he doesn't, he doesn't argue with them about their interpretation on the law. No, he doesn't do that at all. This is what he does. He says in verse 34, Can you make the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. He also told him a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new and the piece from the, old will not, from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But, we put new, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So Jesus doesn't really argue with them. He doesn't say, look, you guys have added that to the law. Now what he does is he says, look, the timing is just not right. The timing's not right because the bridegroom is here and it's just not time to fast. But there is a time where fasting will be appropriate and that's when I'm gone. That's after my death. And, and then he uses this little parable of, of the, the, the garment and the wineskin and, and fairly technical, but the, the long and short of it is what he's saying is that times are changing. I'm about to usher in this new era and the way that you interact with the law is not the way it's going to be anymore. So he says it's just not the right time. The second example that these religious people bring to Jesus is that of the Sabbath. So they come to him with fasting and prayer. Now they come to him with the Sabbath. Check out what it says in chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for, any but, for anyone but the priests to eat? And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The fourth commandment is that God's people would observe the Sabbath day in remembrance that God has created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. And so too God's people were to follow in that pattern, work six days and rest on the seventh. And so these people come and they say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're harvesting, they're picking and they're eating. And, and really what the, what the religious guys have done here is they've, they've sought to put a fence around the law of God. God has said, there's this day and I want you not to work on it. And they come to that and go, what does that mean? What does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? So they say, well, in order to not break that law, what we're going to do is we're going to pull back about 10 steps and just build this big fence and create all these other rules around that law so we don't break it. And so rubbing some grain in your fingers is considered work. And, and they had all of these rules around it. And again, Jesus doesn't argue with them about their interpretation of the law. He doesn't say, look, that's not, that's not what the law was about. This is what the... Instead, he just says, you know what? Remember this example of David? He did this 
And in the end, I'm, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath has not been created for, uh, I have not been created for the Sabbath. Sabbath has been created for me. And, and he redefines what it means to follow the Lord, to worship God. And in the end, the problem with these measures, this thermometer that the religious people are using, is that it all has to do with externals. Prayer and fasting and Sabbath observance and rubbing grain in your fingers, all this kind of stuff, it's all external. And when things end up just being external, they actually end up just being for show. And so what the religious people do of this time is that they just display their righteous religious works. They wear them like badges of honor as they walk around. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He comes and instead of pursuing all of the little external details, he goes for the heart. He relentlessly pursues the heart. See, here's the problem. Their rules actually prevent them from doing what is right and good. And so this next little encounter that we see at the end of, um, at the beginning of chapter 6, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to reveal to them their hearts. He's trying to show to them that you guys have these rules and these rules are preventing you from doing what's good and what's right and what's compassionate and what's loving. So let's have a look at chapter 6, verse 6. This is what it says. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Jesus is purposefully confrontational here. He purposefully heals the man on the Sabbath because he wants to reveal their hearts. He wants them to see how, how far their hearts are from God. These religious guys, they don't rejoice over this man's healing and restoration. They're, they're angry. They're angry that their rules have been broken and not, not respected. Like, How hard does your heart have to be to do that? Here is a guy who's probably unable to work. His right hand is withered. This is a culture of manual labor. He's most likely poor, trapped, dependent, depressed. People don't just see him as deformed. They also see him as defiled and unfit for worship. Jesus comes and he shows compassion and love and, and their response is hatred. Their response is fury and anger. And I think by this event, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, the problem is not that I don't fit your category of law obedience. The problem is that you're sick. The problem that is that your heart is hardly calloused. And so the question is, why is Jesus so different from religious cultural convention of the day? Like, why, is he, why does he fly in the face of everything that these people do? The answer is because the message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, is not that, not that God accepts good people, but that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus entered a world and the whole um, tide of religious culture was this. If I do these things, if I keep these rules, then 
I'll be acceptable to God. If I quarantine myself from sin, then I'm acceptable to God. But Jesus comes and he says, I don't save people who think they're good. Actually, I save people who know they're not. It's the exact opposite. It's hard to admit that we sin, isn't it? We don't really like to hear the news that Jesus brings. It's, it's the, the news that we're not okay, that we're not right. And, and we don't like that. Particularly hard, I think, it, it is to hear feedback from someone who doesn't know you. I, I've had moments in life where someone has um, critiqued me for something. That, and I'm like, you don't know my heart. You don't know my thoughts. You, you, don't, know, you don't know anything about me. How dare you judge me on that thing? But the thing is that Jesus does know us. He does know our hearts and our thoughts and our actions and our words. And just like the men in this story, Jesus perceives their thoughts. Just like last week, the religious people that were standing in that room and Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knows us. He knows us better than ourselves sometimes. I remember my last boss, my pastor, um, his name was Ray one of the most influential people in my life and ministry and he would often sit me down in my office and he would give me feedback about things that I wasn't doing well and I needed to grow in and, and I wasn't offended by it. You know why? Because it was in the context of love. He wanted what was best for me. Friends, when Jesus comes to you and says, you're sick and I'm a doctor and I'm here to help, it's an act of love. You know this... Um, this idea of sin, this idea that, that we're sick, is, is, it's hard for us to get that. I mean, we, we hear about the events that Brian prayed about earlier, about the conflict in Gaza and the human rights atrocities in Mosul and the, the 300 innocent people who have been shot down out of the sky and we think, oh, the problem is out there. When in reality, the problem is actually in here, in our hearts. You know, the very notion of sin to our postmodern culture is prehistoric at best and maybe even offensive. We live in a world where people don't believe in objective morals, where, where ethics and morality are all subjective. And so who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is right or wrong? Who is Jesus to say I'm a sinner? But as so I look at that worldview, I've got a problem with it. My problem is this. We want to be free from sin. We want to be free from all of that religious stuff, but yet we still want to hold people accountable for their actions. Like you survey most people, and most people would, would agree that uh, female genital mutilation and pedophilia and things like that are wrong. But how can you say that if morality and ethics are subjective? This is, the, this is the problem of the world we live in. We want freedom from this, and yet we want accountability here. We want freedom and we want justice. How do we have both of those things? I think the answer is Jesus. The answer is the cross. How can I be free from sin? And how can there be justice over sin at the same time? It only happens when Jesus dies for sin and frees us from sin. Freedom and justice at the same time. I want to suggest to you that's what our world desperately wants. And it's trying to grasp at all these other things and, and in the end the postmodern worldview leaves us with nothing. I wonder if you see your need for Jesus today. 
I wonder if you realize that you're sick. You know, it's not that there's two groups of people in this room, those who are sick and need help and those who don't. It's that there's two groups of people in this room today. There are those who realize they're sick and there are those who think they're not. There are those who are like Levi and their sin is obvious. And then there are those who are like the religious people who think that because of their righteousness, because of their good works, because they haven't done this or they have done that, that they're okay. Jesus has come with this purpose. Verse 33, those, 31, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The gospel message is that Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. And our hope at Anchor Church is that every single person who walks through these doors encounters Jesus and experiences the freedom that he brings experiences the forgiveness that only he can offer, that he sets us free from being slaves to the sin that entraps us and enslaves us. And maybe that means for you today that for the first time, you need to come to Jesus and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sick. I need help. But maybe for you today, it means you need to stop living as if your moral performance is the most important thing to Jesus. Even if you're a Christian even if you get what the gospel means. So it's so easy for us, isn't it, to just think that I did enough good things this week to make God happy. I did enough good things this week that God ought to bless me. I, did, I read my Bible, I prayed, and I'm part of a church plan. I was here two, two hours early to set up. It's so easy for us to just go back to t- ticking boxes. And so maybe this morning you need to examine your heart. Remind yourself of the gospel. You know, one way um, of, of knowing that our heart is unwillingly defaulting back to box ticking is this, is to look at your prayers. As you look through your prayers and, and think about the things that you pray about, are you asking God to just change your habits? Or are you asking really, truly to change your heart? Are you coming to God and saying, God, please change my laziness and make me more productive? Or please change my lust and make me more pure? Or do you ask God to change the heart that produces the laziness, that produces the lust, that that offends God so much, that breaks his heart? Are our prayers all about external things or are they about the heart? See, we need to ask God not for new habits, but a new heart. And the good news of the gospel is that exactly what he gives us takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, new desires, new affections, True change comes when we see our sin, when we cry out to our Savior, and when we trust Him, and we live in light of that reality. That's our hope for you guys as you come to church that the gospel would be real for every single person here. Wherever you are at in your journey of faith, the gospel would be real. Jesus has come to rescue sinners. He does not accept people on the basis of their good works. And so we need to let them go and run to the cross. Friends, we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us now by responding in worship. We've got two stations either side of the stage with some bread and some grape juice. They're two symbols of of Jesus' body and his blood, which was broken and shed for us on the cross for our forgiveness. 
We invite you to use this time as a time of response and worship to do business with God, to, to have a spiritual heart check and come before our great physician, our, our, the doctor of our souls, and plead that he would press the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts. And as you feel convicted and led, come forward and dip that bread in the grape juice and eat and remember what Jesus has done for you. There are also going to be some people out in the foyer here who would love to pray for you. Brian and myself will be there. And if there is anything that you need prayer for this morning, please come forward for prayer. We would love to pray for you. But I'm going to pray now, invite the band up. We're going to respond in praise and worship to our great God. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the doctor of our souls and despite the fact that sometimes we don't quite like the verdict and the diagnosis, we know that truly we, we need him. And so I pray this morning as we come before you in response and worship, we would not come with hands full of our righteousness and our good works, but that we would come desperate. We would come with empty hands pleading that you would do what only you can do. Forgive us, restore us, wash us clean. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that as we respond now, Father, you would make that truth real for us. Press that deep into our hearts. And would we walk out of here and live in light of that reality? We pray this in the strong name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.